In 1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Act. Social Security. Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric C. Kahn. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me, but at that time he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From FunMeter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of the new four-part documentary series on Apple TV Plus called The Big Con. And just a little reminder, all four episodes are available to binge right now. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV Plus, a companion piece to the documentary series of the same name. You might have seen or at least heard about our last project. It was called McMillions, and it was about the McDonald's Monopoly game fraud that happened back in 2001. So when we made McMillions, we actually never had a chance to speak with Jerry Jacobson uh, directly or on the record. We had everyone else's voice, but never really had the point of view of the criminal behind it. So when making the big con, one of the first things that we wanted to do was to see if we could actually include the point of view from the quote-unquote mastermind of Eric C. Kahn. So with some help from our friend Peter King, who's also an executive producer on the documentary series, we found Eric, and we told him what we wanted to do with this story. I think it, it took about a year to earn that trust. And at that point, Eric tells us, by the way, I've been writing this manuscript of my entire life. So James and I, of course along with Peter, are like, well, how do we see this manuscript of yours? Is it handwritten? Is it typed? How long is it? Well, one thing that you have to know is that when Eric was on the run, he wrote a 42-page manifesto that he sent to the press. But his manuscript was close to 400 pages, and it chronicled Eric's entire life. He hadn't shared it with anyone. And after many, many requests, he gave it exclusively to us. So after reading it multiple times, one thing was clear. It was such a unique and fascinating view of the world through Eric's eyes. We were lucky enough to have Boyd Holbrook, who grew up in eastern Kentucky and drove by Eric's billboards almost every single day, bring Eric's words to life in the documentary series. And if you don't know Boyd, He's awesome. He was in Narcos and Logan. He'll be in the new Indiana Jones movie next year. We continue to be lucky to have him be a part of this podcast. And we're going to share even more manuscript moments from Eric's life here. If you've watched the documentary series, you'll know that Eric has been married a lot. So we want to kick off this episode with a story from his manuscript that might have been the catalyst of why he struggled to stay married to just one woman. This is episode two of six, Con Women. And here's Boyd Holbrook as the voice of Eric C. Khan. 
I started law school in 1985 in a small town of Ada, Ohio. Law school was one of the most boring experiences of my life. But my wife being with me made the second year of law school much less boring than the first been. The first time I saw her was at, of all things, a watermelon bash. I decided it was the right time for her and I to get married, and she agreed. Now, she wanted a baby, yet I did not think it was the right time, but I could not stand to see her so sad. So, when we got some extra money, we got a monkey. We gave our new baby the name Kong, like King Kong, because he's so small. We treated him much like a real baby. He was quite literally a handful. He would go around the apartment waiting until I got up to do something so he could drink from my soda can that I'd left. We had to hide the Lucky Charms because he would get into the box and pick out all the marshmallows. Once I graduated from law school, I took a job at a public defender's office near Miami, Florida. It was only about a year after we moved to Florida, the first Gulf War started. Much to my surprise, the Army sent me orders recalling me to active duty for immediate deployment to Saudi Arabia. It was not long after my arrival, I started noticing it was more and more difficult to reach my wife by phone, especially at night. It was not until I could not reach her for three days straight, I came to the conclusion she was seeing someone else. When I finally got her on the phone, she told me everything that had been going on between her and another man. I found myself in a dilemma. On one hand, I was being commended as one of the best officers in the Gulf War. And at night, I was living with the agony of knowing my wife was in another's bed. If I could just go back and spend a few days with her. I went to my colonel and told him of my marital situation, and he said, Son, you're not going to fix your marriage. Yet, I'm going to let you go home for a week, because you need to find out for yourself. I arrived in Florida certain that I could save my marriage. It was not long after I arrived, my wife urgently left to see this man. It was so urgent for her to see him, she asked me to get out of the car and wait for her return. I waited on the side of the road and suddenly, it started raining down on me, causing a silent mockery of my situation. My despair was only made worse when the midnight hour had arrived, making it my 29th birthday. My days were up. I had to go to Philadelphia airport but the flight back to Saudi Arabia was delayed for 12 hours. The delay only gave me more time to think about my wife and her affair. I started calling her on a nonstop basis for over 11 hours of the 12. I finally got her on the phone 24 minutes before my flight was leaving. She told me she just left this man's house. 
I could not move for at least five minutes. Fortunately, I had a moment of clarity. If I missed the flight, I would be absent without leave, AWOL, for a woman who was very obviously in love with another man. I left that phone hanging and immediately took off running for the plane. When I arrived at the gate, I was told boarding was finished. I said, I'm Captain Eric Kahn. I'm supposed to be on that plane. The sergeant called on the radio to speak with the pilot. The plane was already taxing on the runway, minutes if not seconds from taking off. If the plane did take off without me, I would be in deep shit. I was very pleased when I heard the pilot say I am bringing the plane back to the gate. Get Captain Kahn on this plane ASAP. I boarded the plane saying aloud to myself, Colonel, you were right. You were so right. I fixed nothing. Did this early failed marriage change Eric? Did his broken heart lead to breaking hearts? One thing is for certain. He never saw marriage the same again. One of my first responsibilities when I worked for him was to help him get annulments from probably 20 of his marriages. By the time he hired David Hicks, Eric had been married so many times, even he couldn't keep track. Too many, obviously. And there was some he still hadn't gotten out of. For some reason, he wanted to have the annulments done in Mexico. And I had to fax all this documentation to this little office. Well, the guy calls me up and is cussing me out because his fax is just being overrun. And he's like, you just need to send one copy of the marriage certificate. I'm like, no, 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 these are separate marriages. And he goes, what? They're separate marriages. Eric seemed to think wives were something to be collected like souvenirs on vacation. That is, after all, where he met most of them. Some marriages didn't even last for more than a day. I hated it. I hated it when he got married because it was like a whole extra job. Just, you know, getting the paperwork together. <laughs> there was a, a company, it was divorce.com, and they knew my voice when I would call. They'd be like, hey, Becky, how's it going? Because I would call them so much to either get him married while he was in this foreign country or to get that marriage annulled in Mexico, because you can do that. So you can get married through Divorce.com? You can, you can. It's amazing. Whoever knew, right? <laughs> you could call the marriages performative, even transactional. But in his manuscript, Eric talks about it like he was eat, pray, loving his way across the globe. We met in Cancun, Siberia, and Russia. Colombia was a country known for its drugs, but my interest was in something much more addictive. Women. Svetlana Lori was the absolute perfect white wife. I went to Las Vegas to get married. I got married. The moment we got married, I knew it was a mistake. Wanderlust continued to call me like a song from the sirens. He usually sent them back. To him, it was like Amazon. If you didn't like it, you just send it back. It was as simple as, well, we didn't click this weekend, and so now we're divorced. Bye-bye. Despite Eric's wanderlust, his eyes never had to travel far to find someone he liked. Any young girl that was in the office, 
I mean, he, he would marry them. He would buy them gifts, jewelry, and say, you know, I think that she'll date me if I get her a really nice pair of earrings. So we would go spend $1,200 on a set of earrings and give him the box and he would take them down. And most of the time he didn't get the date, but they would still get the earrings. That's Eric's former assistant, Melinda Hicks. During the six years she worked for Eric, she saw him look for love any place he could find it. Take the time in 2008, when Eric walked into the office bragging about his new girlfriend, Raven Riley. She was a little bit of a celebrity. Raven Riley, the internet's number one adult entertainer. Can I help you? The relationship started on either Facebook or MySpace. To be clear, Eric had never met Raven. She lived in Arizona. So Melinda looked up Raven's profile on Facebook and noticed something seemed off. We thought it was really odd that this girl was only friends with a few big time local guys. So we started looking into it and we found out that it was actually just a girl here in Prestonsburg locally pretending to be Raven Riley. She had stolen her pictures and she was just messing with men, basically. So Eric got catfished. He did. He got catfished. Eric was really embarrassed, so he committed to the bit in his own Eric Conway. And he had already told so many people he wanted it to seem real. So he got a hold of Raven Riley's agent and paid her to make this big breakup tape. Fuck you, Eric C. Con. I can have any man I want. I don't need you. I was tired of your ass anyways. In the video, actual Raven Riley sat cross-legged on a twin bed wearing a pink t-shirt and jeans. Her long, dark hair covered the phone that she held to her ear. You think you're so perfect because you don't drink and don't smoke and don't eat red meat. Eric wrote the script out, you know, word for word, what he wanted her to say. I don't remember how much he paid for that video, but they never met or spoke. You think you get the job done? There was plenty of times where you didn't get the job done for me. He had recorded it on his phone, so it was like a voicemail on his phone. I remember when he took it into the hearing office and was showing the judges, and he was letting the judges listen to it, and, you know, everybody was laughing. I don't need your money, honey. Matter of fact, you can take your Mercedes, your beach house, your Armani suits, and shove it up your ass. He would tell this big story about their breakup that was never real. I mean, at the time, I was really young myself, so I just thought it was hilarious. As proud as he was of his way with women, Eric almost seemed a little embarrassed by it. Here's Scott White, one of Eric's attorneys. He talked about it being a character flaw. You know, he brought a number of women from Central America, Asia, I think Thailand. I mean, literally plucked some 18, 19 year old girl out of Ecuador. Then suddenly they'd find themselves in the middle of nowhere, Pikeville, Kentucky. Now, a lot of people had mixed feelings about Eric's reputation as a playboy, from Melinda even to Becky Rose. When he did bring one over, they didn't really speak English. They never really seemed like they wanted to be here. You would always think in the back of your head, who would treat someone like that? That is creepy as hell. It was just weird. You know, a lot of people say that he took advantage of all of these women, but honestly, I really think it was kind of the other way around. That if they wanted some sort of reconstructive surgery, they got it. If they wanted Prada bags and designer puppies, they got them. The whole thing just seemed very, very twisted. 
there's something not right here. And it kind of fit with everything else he did. It just was sketchy and, you know, perverted. That last voice was Damien Paletta, the reporter from the Wall Street Journal. So for all the women Eric chased around the world over the years, the two women who would have the biggest impact were actually a lot closer to home. And they'd been spending a lot of time with Damien. We took it outside multiple times multiple and it times never went anywhere. Where, but this time, but this at, one some time point, it did, at some point it did. The moment Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith sat down with Wall Street Journal reporter Damien Paletta, they hoped their story would finally go somewhere. And on May 27, 2011, the front page of the Wall Street Journal read, Disability Claim Judge Has Trouble Saying No. The story said that the average administrative law judge awarded benefits 60% of the time. But Judge David Doherty was awarding benefits 99% of the time. And, of course, most of those cases were with Eric C. Kahn. Even though staff and other judges had complained about this for years, they just let him keep doing what he was doing. Had it not been for that Wall Street Journal article or news articles being written about us, nobody would know about this case. Here's a rundown from the doc series of what happened next. When there's fraud in a federal program, the FBI isn't the initial group that goes in to find out what happened. The Social Security Administration has this unit called the Inspector General. Real investigators with firearms whose job it is to go around and investigate wrongdoing. The day that the Wall Street Journal article came out, we had already mobilized our emergency response team down to Huntington, West Virginia, to seize computers and to interview everyone in the office. The OIG investigator called me on my cell phone because I was not in the office. He wanted to meet with me. I told him in that meeting, I said, I know why you're here. You're here because of the Wall Street Journal article. And he said, well, our office has been contacted and we have your complaint. I said, but you didn't contact me before now, did you? Jennifer had filed her first complaint with the OIG about Judge Doherty in 2009. It took them nearly two years and another complaint filed in 2011 to finally take her seriously. But by the time the investigators descended upon Huntington, West Virginia SSA office in 2011, Jennifer had been gone for four years. But Sarah Carver still worked there. And she was miserable. After she left, I knew that I was a target. And it began with me reporting Jennifer's information. But because they started retaliating against me, I had to go in like a survival mode. The more they would pressure me, the more I would report because I knew what they were doing was wrong. Weeks after the Wall Street Journal article dropped, Sarah started to have some car trouble. One day I was driving and I noticed that I had, I noticed some problems with my brakes and I thought maybe it was the rotors or, you know, something like that. And I took it into a mechanic and received a phone call later that day. The mechanic didn't know anything that I was going through. He wasn't a personal friend or anything, but based on what he viewed, he called me with concern. It appeared that the brake line had been clearly cut, something that he would not normally see, and he wanted to let me know. Had someone really cut her brake lines? I mean. 
It sounded like something out of a Hollywood movie, right? And Sarah herself didn't believe it. I mean, at the time, I really, I mean, I didn't know the danger. I can look back with the information that I know now, but at the time when each of these things happened, I kind of, I really kind of just chalked it up to, well, you know, maybe, maybe it did happen accidentally. Surely no one's going to cut my brake lines. You know, that's, it's, it's not, that's not something that, it, to me, it didn't feel like at the time that somebody would intentionally do. If you remember from the series, one evening, Sarah was out of town when she discovered her tires had been slashed. And at that point, Sarah started thinking, maybe my car troubles are intentional. And this was just the beginning. During this period of time, there were so many instances or occurrences or bad things that happened. I mean, everything from nails thrown in my driveway, nails in my tires, people following me, videotaping me. At the time, I didn't know the extent of it. My social media was monitored by management. While Sarah's enemies spied on her, Sarah was doing some data collection of her own. Not long after the inspector general's investigation started, shredders appeared in the office and managers ramped up security. They installed soundproof doors, surveillance cameras, even metal detectors to check for bugs. One afternoon, Sarah snapped a photo of employees removing documents from the office in black garbage bags and stacks of boxes. Then she realized all of her emails between 2005 and 2011 had disappeared. But luckily, Sarah and Jen already made copies. Back in Stanville, Kentucky, Eric Kahn's employees were also dealing with a fallout from the Wall Street Journal. Naturally, they all wanted to know if the article was true. One employee actually asked Eric outright, and Melinda Hicks overheard it. And I think that's the first time he kind of hinted that it was by telling her where there's smoke, there's fire. So then we all kind of knew at that point that there was some truth to it. There was smoke, all right, and fire. Here's another excerpt from our series. Eric just went through the office and he said, let's get rid of anything that has Darty's name on it. Everybody was moving files out and we would take them out back and toss them in this fire. So it was, it was medical records, it was whole files. The records, simply we destroyed records every year because after five years we didn't keep the records anymore. Now, I should not have done it that year when I realized that I was under investigation. I'll give you that. The office was officially a party. People were getting drunk during the day, and it was pretty wild. And then someone gave him Valium, and I mean, he was just literally dancing, twirling in the office. Eric really started to spiral after dodging phone calls from Judge Doherty, but he couldn't avoid the judge forever. Everybody knew that Eric met Judge Doherty for lunch once a month. We never knew anything other than that. But when this one time that I was at the hearing office, Eric had forgotten about a lunch. So Judge Doherty calls him, and I can hear Judge Doherty. I can hear that he's yelling and that he's really upset, but I can't really hear what he's saying. So Eric is super nervous. You know, he, he says, I have to leave. I'm going to have to leave you here. 
call mommy and have somebody come get you. So he leaves and I am stranded in the parking lot of the hearing office. Melinda had never doubted Eric before, but he was acting too weird. She and other employees who worked there weren't sure if they could trust him. Luckily, Becky Rose started at the Khan Law Complex at just the right time. I didn't keep up with Eric Khan. <laughs> you know, like, he was just that, like, super crazy lawyer with the billboards, um, you know, in my community. I didn't really follow the news about him or, um, I was very young, so, um, so I, di- I didn't really know anything about the article until after I started working there. Sure, Becky heard the whispers from her coworkers, but she was just happy to work for Eric. And he did his best to keep everything that was happening from Becky. I believed that he was who he said he was. I was his number one fan. It wasn't until Eric needed her help with something that she started paying more attention to what everyone else was whispering about. One day in the fall of 2011, Eric came to her desk and asked Becky to go to one of the offices next door to learn how to use the federal court filing system. Because there was a lady over there that knew how to use it, and she taught me. And what we discovered is that there had been a complaint filed, but it was, it was sealed, so we couldn't see what it was. Becky would later find out that the case was actually a whistleblower's lawsuit filed by Sarah and Jennifer. But it wasn't until probably right at that point that I knew or cared about what was supposedly happening with him and this judge. Like, I had no clue. I was clueless. I I just, you know, when I did find out about it all, my my little daddy um, would always say, Becky, now Eric's good to you and you guys are friends and, and, you know, but you keep your nose clean. So I always kept my nose clean. And, um, but, but that, that's a very real possibility that he was afraid that I would just decide he was actually a bad guy and leave. So he, he, painted, he painted the picture? Yes. And I bought it. Straight from the art gallery. <laughs> Eric was a good salesman. He needed Becky on his side. She was there to help him expand his practice nationally. And the bad press was disrupting that. Nothing a solid marketing push couldn't fix, though. And it turned out another Wall Street Journal article by the same reporter, Damian Paletta, gave Eric the right opportunity to capitalize on. I didn't go into journalism to be kind of a disability fraud inspector gadget. But he kind of was. Damian's story on Eric C. Khan was just one in a series of articles he wrote. Eight months after that one ran, Damian put out another story exposing questionable practices at the largest disability law firm in the country. This firm called Bender & Bender, which was headquartered in New York. When you're disabled, you really need your Social Security disability benefits. All across America, Bender & Bender is America's most successful Social Security disability advocates. It's interesting, you know, there couldn't be more different places than Appalachia and New York, but they kind of had a similar business model as Eric did, where you just need a huge volume of cases to move through the system. And, um, you know, what, what Eric could do in Appalachia, they could do in New York, in Miami, in California, and all over the place. And I found in their case 
that it wasn't the relationships that they had with judges, but it was the way that they presented evidence to judges that was kind of outside the norm. And they had figured out uh, kind of a formula, if you will, to make it easier for their cases to get approved. Soon after it ran, Bender and Bender came under fire. And eventually they filed for bankruptcy. That's when Eric swooped in and introduced himself to the rest of the nation. Eric Kahn, in his ingenious, shameless way, put together an ad, tried to capitalize on my article about Bender and Bender, and present himself as this like upstanding, moral high ground uh, disability lawyer that everyone could trust. Hi, I'm Kia Hampton. I'm sure you've recently heard of a company called Bender and Bender who are being investigated by the Social Security Administration for potentially fraudulent practices. In fact, Kia Hampton was Kentucky's own beauty queen who won the title of Miss Congeniality USA in 2011. It was just like Eric to hire a good-looking woman to tell everybody that Eric C. Khan was still very much open for business. You had a non-lawyer before, but now you need a lawyer. The Eric C. Khan Law Firm, a nationwide law firm, is here for you. Essentially saying, oh my gosh, the Wall Street Journal has said that our competitor is doing things they shouldn't be doing. Therefore, you should come work with us because we are real lawyers and we will protect you and, and get you the benefits in the most kind of righteous and morally um, superior way. And it was an amazing admission from him that he not only was going to kind of plow right through my reporting, but he was going to use my reporting to try to get even richer. And you almost, almost have to tip your hat at him. I mean, I think one of the great um, powers in life is if you're shameless. You know, if nothing phases you, if you're never embarrassed, if you just don't flinch when something happens where you, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself, Eric wasn't ashamed of himself, and it allowed him to keep going. And Eric did keep going, which was curious to Damien. His reporting had caused the largest disability firm in the country to file for bankruptcy. And months after that, federal agents conducted a massive arrest of nearly 70 people in Puerto Rico who were connected to another fraud scheme he had written about. But for Eric, business was better than ever. According to agents at the office of the inspector general, it wasn't for a lack of trying. They thought they had everything necessary to prove a conspiracy was happening. They had phone records, cash deposits, even manufactured medical evidence. So they went running to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of West Virginia, saying, look at what we got. But they weren't impressed. And that became the next hurdle, trying to get the Southern District of West Virginia to actually prosecute the case. It was looking like Eric Kahn could dodge any bullet. And he might have known that when he got involved in a different scheme with another powerful judge. If you study Kahn's history, I called him Teflon Eric. Attorney Ned Pillersdorf had a practice a few towns over from Kahn's. He was well aware of the many mysteries surrounding Kahn. He got kicked out of the Veterans Court in 2001. For some inexplicable reason, he did not get disciplined or kicked out of the Kentucky Bar Association. And then we had the absolutely despicable chapter 
in, in 2012. Khan was not worried about being indicted. He had pretty much gotten the word in West Virginia there wasn't going to be a criminal case. What Khan was worried about was keeping his law license. In September 2013, Ned had just finished a hearing at the Franklin County Courthouse in the state capital of Frankfurt when he got an unexpected phone call. And ironically, I'm driving home on I-64 and my cell phone rings and it's a judge who I was just in front of and he said, Ned, there's something going on in the other court today. Eric Kahn is in here pleading guilty to something involving Janet Stumbo's Supreme Court campaign. I knew nothing about it. That's Janet Stumbo, the first woman elected to Kentucky Supreme Court. You heard from her in episode one at the Hillbilly Days Festival where she saw Eric and his Khan hotties. I mean, can you think of anything less dignified? As it happens, Ned had a pretty good reason to care about this development. My name is Ned Pillersdorf, but people also know me as Mr. Janet Stumbo. I've run my wife's eight tumultuous judicial campaigns. Tumultuous indeed. Janet's campaign in 2012, when she challenged incumbent Will T. Scott, was by far her most dramatic. Will Scott is airing misleading ads about Judge Janet Stumbo using newspaper quotes. Former Justice Janet Stumbo sided with criminals 59% of the time. The Courier-Journal called Scott's campaign judicial sleaze and corrosively false. The race was chock full of cheap shots and outspending. Ultimately, Scott defeated Janet, but Ned was about to find out that it didn't end there. Nine months after the inspector general investigation began, another agency started looking into Khan. According to investigative records from the Kentucky Attorney General, in February 2012, Will T. Scott dropped by Khan's office with a stack of envelopes for donations. Khan then gave Kia Hampton, former beauty queen turned Khan employee, $10,000 to donate to Scott's campaign. But here's where it gets weird. According to Kia Hampton's statement to the U.S. government, she then went to the Bessie Lane post office and got 10 $1,000 money orders payable to Scott for Supreme Court. The money was sent to the Supreme Court campaign of Scott. You see, each $1,000 donation was made in the name of a different con employee. In other words, these are straw donations, which, if you don't know about straw donations, they're illegal. So the office of the attorney general opened an investigation. An investigator came down and interviewed the 10 people who made these straw donations. And they said, we see you've made a a 1,000 donation to Will Scott. And all 10 of the employees said the same thing. That's not my money. I don't know who Will Scott is. I'm not registered to vote. That's Sarah Khan's money. So it was a clear, flagrant money laundering campaign finance scheme. You know, Khan admits to this whole deal in his manuscript, but he does say that it wasn't exactly his idea. Let's hear from Boyd again reading Eric's manuscript. He said my giving him money would be good for me because at some point an issue of my ethics would come before his court as a result of the corruption allegations. He told me that since he was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, that he'd make sure I kept my license. If that didn't scream shakedown, I don't know what did. I said quietly to myself, here we go. More pressure from another judge to give him money. Once again, I did the stupid thing. 
We reached out to Wilty Scott, but he declined an interview. He told investigators that he was surprised to see the $10,000 donation, and he sent the money orders back to the contributors. Others who were interviewed confirmed that they received the money in the mail, and Eric let them keep it. All of this was news to Janet, and it made her think differently about the campaign. We always thought there was something weird with the whole thing. Then Ned calls me. You know, it made me mad because that's cheating, and that's illegal. It's not just illegal, it's a felony, but not for Eric C. Khan. All right, uh, please state your name for the record. My name is Eric Christopher Khan, Your Honor. Records say the Kentucky Attorney General's office was going to charge him with a felony. Instead, Khan's attorneys reached an agreement with the Attorney General. Okay, it looks like a plea or something, is that right? It is, Your Honor. It's a plea agreement that we've reached with the Commonwealth. It's just a little different to what we normally do. It looks like there are some amended charges, is that correct? The amendment is to criminal attempt, which is a Class A misdemeanor. Eric pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. This was very strange to Ned. Khan inexplicably and unbelievably, despite this mountain of evidence of 10 people saying he was involved in this organized, this complex scheme, was offered a misdemeanor unsupervised probation on the condition he report his violation of the Kentucky Bar Association. We were not consulted. Ned was enraged. He immediately called up the attorney general's office demanding an explanation. And I basically said, what the hell's going on? You gave this guy with this history this overwhelming evidence of fraud. You submerged it for a year and a half, did this surprise guilty plea, and you gave this guy a misdemeanor that he self-report? And I basically got a combative response. We reached out to the Kentucky Attorney General's office. They declined to comment because it occurred under a prior attorney general. I don't know what happened that that allowed Khan to get away with that, but remember, this was 2012 and 13. If Khan had been made to plead guilty to a felony, which he was overwhelmingly guilty of, he would have lost his law license in 2012 and 13. Here's the thing. Kentucky has a long history of shady political dealings, and it goes way deeper than just getting cozy with donors. We're talking corrupt campaign contributions, endorsements in exchange for votes, accepting bribes, embezzlement. The bluegrass state has really seen it all. Janet saw it all of the time on the campaign trail. In fact, some voters expect their votes to be bought. And vote buying has its own expression there, putting money on the ground. It required my daddy, when he was out campaigning for me, to say outright to people, no, we're not putting any money on the ground. But they asked him that. Are we going to put money on the ground? No. Never have, never will. Probably by the third or fourth time I was on the ballot, they didn't bother asking. They knew I was not going to put money on the ground. That was my history. Kentucky politicians have been rated the most corrupt among reporters who watch the government closely. It's no wonder people like Eric Kahn flew under the radar. But to this day, I still don't understand why in the world the attorney general's office 
offered him this unconscionably lenient plea agreement and, and why this thing got through. I don't know the answer to that, and we may never know, but that's just an example how Eric Kahn was Teflon. He got the name Teflon Khan. Now remember, this is 2013. The OIG had been investigating him for over a year and a half at this point. But for whatever reason, they couldn't get any U.S. attorney to prosecute. But 450 miles away from Stanville, Kentucky, someone in Washington, D.C. was working to change Khan's Teflon status. In less than a month, exactly how crooked Khan was would all come out on Capitol Hill. Do you swear that the testimony you will give before the committee will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? What's fascinating about them is they kind of knew everything. They had knew all the kind of dirty tricks that Eric had played inside his office. My little daddy calling up the whole family going, hey, turn on C-SPAN. Becky's on C-SPAN. It wasn't even TMZ, it was C-SPAN, man. The focus of that panel ended up becoming Brad Adkins, in part, it was because Brad Adkins pretty much spilled his guts during that entire panel. He actually had said before that the, he referred to those as whore doctors. He said that if, if they had sanctions and had their license suspended before, that he could get them to do whatever he wanted and they were cheaper to work with. You heard him say that? Yes. They zoomed to his face and he said, bullshit. That's coming up on the Big Con Podcast. The Big Con, the official podcast, is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by FunMeter. And don't forget the entire four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is episode two of six. New episodes will be out every Friday. The show is hosted and executive produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogni and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, our amazingly talented co-EP from the documentary series. The show is engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino. Additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. And make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.